This program is brought to you by SoundsTrue.com. At SoundsTrue.com, you can find hundreds of downloadable audio learning programs, plus books, music, videos, and online courses and events. We also host the annual Wake Up Festival, a five-day experience of transformation, held in August of each year in the beautiful Rocky Mountains. You can also join our free direct access membership program and read transcripts of all of the Insights at the Edge podcasts and search our collection of podcasts with now more than 100 episodes available. At SoundsTrue.com, we think of ourselves as a trusted partner on the spiritual journey, offering diverse, in-depth, and life-changing wisdom. SoundsTrue.com. Many voices, one journey. You're listening to Insights at the Edge. Today my guest is Carl Honoré. Carl is an award-winning journalist, author, and rehabilitated speedaholic. He's the author of Under Pressure and the international bestseller In Praise of Slowness, where he examines our compulsion to hurry and chronicles a global trend toward putting on the brakes. He lives in London with his wife, who is also a writer, and their two children. With Sounds True, Carl Honoré has created an audio program called The Power of Slow, Finding Balance and Fulfillment Beyond the Cult of Speed, where he shows how to lead a richer, more rewarding life by joining the slow revolution that is sweeping across the globe. In this episode of Insights at the Edge, Carl and I spoke about how, as a culture, We've become addicted to the quality of moving quickly through our lives, especially in the workplace. We talked about how we can help ourselves unplug from a fast life by rethinking our use of technology and help break our addiction to faster is better by incorporating slow rituals such as yoga, meditation, and even slow cooking into our lives. We also discussed the virtues of slow thinking, which to Carl means doing things as well as possible rather than as quickly as possible, and examples of corporations such as IBM and Google who incorporate this concept into their employees' workdays. Here's my helpful conversation with Carl Honoré. Carl, as I was preparing to talk with you today, I said to my partner, hey, I need to go speed read this book on In Praise of Slowness. You know, and I'm sure you've heard this type of joke before when people refer to your work even in your own bio on the flap of the book. You said that you got a speeding ticket while you were in the process of writing the book. And, but what this all made me think of is what a difficult kind of against the wind experience it is to explore slowness in our world and something like the slow movement in today's world, does it really have a chance of success? I I think it does. Uh, And I think it's proving that day after day as it spreads and manifests itself in different ways in every walk of life. But you put your finger on something there at the start, which I think is crucial here. And that is that this is Profoundly, the idea of a, a slow revolution is profoundly countercultural because we live in a 
fast-forward world, the virus of hurry has infected the, blo- the bloodstream. You know, it's, it's, it's infected every corner of our lives, and it does run very much against the grain. So that, yeah, as you say, even when I was investigating the prospects of slowing down and discovering as I went along that it made sense to put on the brakes from time to time, I found myself getting a speeding ticket. You know, this is this is one of the ironies nowadays is that we're all so pumped up, we're all so impatient that we even want to slow down fast. So you, I do get people writing to me or making comments along the lines of, you know, um, is there a potted version of your book? You know, <laughs> have you thought about boiling it down to a you know three-minute podcast? We um, this is this is sort of where we are now. I think that we um, we we you know we want to slow down or in a hurry. So in the face of this incredible sense of rush and hurry that we all seem to be in the midst of, what gives you hope for the slow movement? Well, two things. One, I think that we're reaching one of those uh, turning points in history when the tectonic plates are beginning to shift below the surface. It seems to me, if we just step back a moment and take a look at the big picture, that we have been on an upward curve of acceleration for, you know, a good century and a half, maybe more, uh, you know, at least since the Industrial Revolution, when every component of our society and our lives has been getting faster and faster. And I would argue that for the most part, that was doing more good than bad. But in recent years, the pendulum has swung to the other extreme and this obsession with doing things faster and faster, with cramming more and more into less and less time, is now, I think, doing more harm than good. And if you spool back 15 years and and made that argument, I think a lot of people would have said, "Mm, yeah, that makes sense to me, Uh, but we can't do anything about it. You know, the the world is the way it is. But I think that in in the last sort of five or six years or so, it's become plain that the model is broken. You know, this fast forward roadrunner uh, economic system, social system, cultural approach is is busted. You know, it doesn't work. L- look at what happened in the financial markets. I mean, we're always being told that we cannot slow down because the economy has to go faster and faster. The money has to get faster and faster. But even money is too fast now. I mean, look at in, on Wall Street and the city in London. You know, what went wrong there in a lot of ways was that money got too fast. People had no time or incentive to lift up the hood, see if the engine was overheating, it was all about fast profits, fast growth, fast turnover. And it nearly drove all of us over an economic cliff edge. So I, I think that even in the financial markets, you're starting to see people say, hang on a minute here. Faster maybe isn't always better. There's a, a very well-known investor in the city of London called Gervais Williams, who a few months ago uh, published a book called Slow Finance. And he's, his thesis is that, yeah, you know, he's a free marketeer. He's a money manager. He believes in, in competition and in doing the best you can do and so on. But he has also realized along the way that the, that the markets and the economy and businesses in many cases are just too fast and it's backfiring on them. So he's looking at ways in his book on how to, how to bring that slow thinking, the idea that sometimes slower is better than faster, into the, uh, into the corporate world. And to me, that shows that the wind is starting to change, that the you know the goalposts are starting to move, and that people are beginning to accept that more and more acceleration is not the way forward. Uh, and then, you know you look at another dimension here, I think is the environment. It's pretty clear that we cannot carry on along this same path. this same socioeconomic uh, model is doing such harm 
to the earth that it's just simply unsustainable to think that the planet could sustain, you know, eight, nine, ten billion people living the way the average you know, American lives now, consuming that many, um, you know, that, that many resources in an average day and so on. So I think that you put all of these pieces together and we're reaching one of those turning points in history when when things will change. Things have to change because in a way we haven't got a choice. I hope you're right. And I definitely sometimes feel like I'm naturally part of the slow thinking movement, meaning sometimes my mind feels kind of slow. But tell me what you mean by that when you use a term like slow thinking. Well, I guess in a, in a sense, there's a, uh, this is probably a, the moment to underline what slow means with a capital S. It's not about doing everything at a snail's pace. It's it's not about doing everything in slow motion. It's about doing everything at the right speed. So there are times to be fast. There are times to be slow. And then you want to be moving through all of those different speeds in between. The musicians use the term tempo giusto, the, the correct tempo, the idea that each piece of music has a natural rhythm, a natural speed that is best for that piece of music. And if, you know, we all have our own natural tempo, we all have our own internal metronome, you know, and if we can arrive at each moment of our day trying to do whatever it is we want, are seeking to do, not as fast as possible, but as well as possible, then then that turns everything on its head, and that is, that is the essence of living slow. Now, what does that mean for thinking? Well, what we know more and more about the way the brain operates is that there are various gears in our heads. You know, there's kind of what some people call you know, system one and system two or fast thinking and slow thinking. Fast thinking is that sort of intuitive stuff we do when we make a snap decision. Sometimes that can be very accurate, sometimes a little less so. Slow thinking is about shifting into a, a, a slower gear, taking more time, uh, reflecting, pondering, mulling, daydreaming, doing all those things that are seem a little bit countercultural at the moment because they take time. But actually what we know from the research is that when people slip into that slow thinking mode, when we're in a relaxed, mellow state, the brain waves move around in the head in more rich, more nuanced patterns, and we get those moments of breakthrough insight, those flashes of genius, those eureka moments, you know, that we're all seeking. Um, you know, and we, we you know, and psychologists refer to that as slow thinking, and we all know it in our own lives, don't we, that our best ideas seldom come when we're juggling 24 emails or rushing to meet a five o'clock deadline or, you know, or, or racing to finish a report while our impatient boss hovers at our shoulder. No, they come when we're soaking in the bath or walking in the park or swinging in a hammock. You know, when we're in that slow mode, the mind just moves into a different gear. And you need to have both gears. You need to have various gears. And, and I think more and more you're seeing people understanding that and creating space, even in fast environments, whether it's in Silicon Valley or you know, banks, to try and create moments when people can tap into that deeper, richer, more creative, more fertile form of thinking that, that you rightly call slow thinking. Now, I just want to clarify something you're saying because I think it's really important here at the outset. You're really defining slow more as balance than as just being at a snail's pace. Is that correct? Absolutely, yeah. And I, I would stand on the, the rooftops and, and shout that in, to the four winds. That, that, that is the absolute quintessence of this slow revolution, is that it's not about replacing the cult of speed with the cult of slowness. You know, I cannot think personally of anything worse than, than doing everything slowly, you know, I, not least because I'm actually... my personal tempo, my metronome is actually quite a fast one. So I would find, I find it, you know, insufferable to be pushed into doing everything slowly. That would be just as much folly as doing everything fast. Slow, the slow revolution, slow with a capital S 
is about doing things at the right speed. So yeah, there are times to be quick, times to be slow, and then sometimes there are times just not to have any speed at all, just to be still, you know, to be quiet, to do nothing at all. So it's about balance is another way to put it. It's about finding the right equilibrium, you know, in, in terms of um, different speeds. It's about remembering that there is good slow and bad slow. <laughs> you know, I had a, I had to change a uh, an airline ticket the other day, and I went, to, you know, I called up one of those helplines, and I was left on hold for 40 minutes listening to Enya on a constant loop. And I can tell you that that is bad slow. Uh, but, you know, there, the, I think the revolutionary idea is that people are beginning to grasp that there is such a thing as good slow. You know, good slow is taking the time at work, for instance, to look at a problem from every angle so that you make the best decision and get the, get it, get the solution right the first time. Good slow can be as simple as just getting enough sleep, you know, or reading a bedtime story to your children without skipping pages and lines. Um, so I, I think that's what really what we're at here is good, slow, bad, slow. Uh, and by the same token, good, fast, and bad, fast. Mm-hmm. You know, and I want to talk more about some of the ways that the slow movement is looking at redesigning our world, redesigning cities, and redesigning all kinds of things, our education system. But before we go there, the thing that was really striking me when I was thinking about my own habits of speed is first of all that there seems to be a type of addictive quality to moving quickly that I see in my life and the lives of many people. We almost seem to enjoy being busy. You know, I'm an important person. I'm very busy. I have a lot to do. I have places, mm-hmm. you know, and I almost build sometimes my schedule so that there'll be that adrenaline rush and sense of importance that comes with that. So I wonder what you think about this addiction and the cult of speed that we find ourselves in. No question. I think that speed is a kind of drug, and we are collectively speed junkies. And I think that we're addicted to it on two levels. One is the sort of social cultural level that you mentioned there, that that there is such a, a social imperative to be busy. You know, we feel like if if there's a an empty space in our schedule, we don't rejoice and think, oh, there's a moment to to to, to, to rest, to reflect, to to recharge. We panic and we rush to fill it with some more activity. <laughs> you know, and people, you know, you meet people in the street nowadays, and you say, hi, you know, how are you doing? And people say, busy. You know, it's like it, it, it's kind of a badge of honor now to be busy, and somehow not to be busy is seen as a mark of failure or a lack of pe- people being uninterested in you. And I think this is, we sort of wound ourselves up into or painted ourselves into a corner where we can feel in our bones that this busyness is is actually backfiring, that it's it's eroding our enjoyment of life and making us less productive and getting in the way of our personal relationships. But we still find it hard to let go of because the taboo against not being busy, you know, the opposite of constant busyness, the taboo against that runs so deep. It's even built into our vernacular. We talk about downtime, dead time. You know, these are pejorative terms to describe what should be a good thing, which is time when you're not racing the clock, time when you're not juggling four things, time when you can breathe for a moment. You know, that's that's absolutely crucial. And then coming back to the second element here of, of addiction, I think there's a physical component, almost a chemical addiction to speed that, you know, we know as we start to look into the way the brain works and so on, that when people are in that busy fast-moving state, there's a kind of adrenaline rush. You know, you get the limbic system lights up and you're getting um, 
you know, dopamine and things fired into the the, the, the bloodstream, and, and that gives us a, a little kick, a little thrill, and and that's addictive, and we come back for it more and more. We're hardwired for for the quick fix and the, the rush that we get for for from delivering one. So we end up in this cycle where we get a little bit of a you know dopamine squirt, a little bit of excitement, and we go back and back and back, and 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 and. So that even when intellectually we've decided that this running around, this chasing our tail, this carousel of quick fixes is not working for us, and let's say we do take the first step and jump off the carousel, what happens? Well, we we start to fidget because like a drug addict coming off heroin, say we we get we get withdrawal symptoms in the early stages, and we think, you know, we start to panic and get a bit restless, and we, then we re- reach out for something else to to replace that stimulation. So there's no question. I think it's a perfect metaphor to describe where we are individually and collectively, and also physically and emotionally and intellectually is speed junkies. You know, this is a kind of addiction and addictions are hard to break. You know, they take time to break, but but they are breakable. Well, and I would love to hear from you now from a personal perspective. I mean, it's always useful for me in terms of looking at an addiction to hear from somebody who was an addict and has gone through some kind of process in working with their own addiction and how they dealt with it. So tell me a little bit about your own speed addict and hopefully breaking through, dropping the addiction to speed. Yes, Carl? Yeah, I mean, I, yes, absolutely. I'm, I'm, I mean, I, I, I think of myself as a rehabilitated speedaholic. You know, I still love speed. Uh, I live in London, which has a lot of speed and volcanic energy, and I play fast sports, and I like to go fast, but I've also learned to feel comfortable with slowing down and to, to, to reconnect with my inner tortoise, if you like. And by striking that balance, I, I feel like I'm, you know, I've, I've got control of my life again and I'm enjoying it and, and living it rather than rushing through it. But that didn't happen overnight. I mean, it was absolutely, a, you used the word process there. I mean, it was, it's, and in some ways it may even be a lifelong process, you know, tackling this temptation to go faster than you need to in the same way as a, an alcoholic maybe is always an alcoholic. You know, you, you, there's always a danger you might fall off the wagon again. I think as a, a, re, a speedaholic, you've always got to be aware that you're susceptible to that temptation to go too fast. So, uh, you know, I still feel the urge to go too quick, but at least now I have kind of breakers. I've built sort of systems, if you like, without wanting to sound too mechanistic about it, into my own life that allow me to resist that temptation uh, most, if not all of the time. So I guess what, what what's the sorts of things that I... I do one I've took a look at all of the things that I do. I do less, I suppose. I mean and again this is profoundly runs against the cultural grain. We're all under so much pressure to do more and more and to say yes to every work assignment, yes to every social invitation. But that, you know, you cannot have it all. That that's just a recipe for hurrying it all. And I think a big part of slowing down is accepting that you cannot do it all and and prioritizing pinpointing the things that really matter to you socially, professionally, emotionally, in relationships and so on, and focusing on those and letting everything else go. And and that's a difficult thing to do if you've spent a lot of time, as I had, just trying to squeeze it all in. But that's something that I think of the power of slow, but it goes hand in hand with the power of no, you know, having the discipline to say, you know what, this this is, I just, no, this is not important enough to, to, to occupy time. I have more important things that my time will go to. So that's a first thing that I, I began doing, and it took a while to do it, but that's now very much the way I approach everything um, when I'm building my schedule for the week or the month or the year. A second change that I made is to re 
design my relationship with technology because this is one of the the great drivers, I think, of our speed culture are all of these gadgets, which are everywhere now and are wonderful. You know, I'm, I'm no Luddite. I've got an iPhone and a MacBook and I, Wi-Fi, and I love them. But they all have a little red button that says off. And I think the problem is that we don't tend to use that button, and that's why we get overwhelmed. So I, I have, you know, I've been very firm with my own use of technology. There, I keep my phone switched off a lot of the time. Many times I don't take it with me. When I do, I don't need it. I don't take gadgets into the bedroom ever. Uh, I have a space that's just completely free of distractions and electronic interruptions and so on. Um, so that that's made a big difference as well. And and then I guess the third thing that I've done, I mean, there are lots of things I've, I've, I've done to make this transition happen and push it forward. But a third is to build sort of slow rituals into your daily life. I mean, that's something I always suggest people do. And, and you know, it'll be different for everyone. It might be you do say i don't know um meditation or gardening or poetry or uh, you know pilates or whatever it is for me i, I do yoga which f- has been hugely helpful in just causing me to find that lower gear helping me you know shift down and then i'm a i'm a big fan of cooking so i make time to cook cooking to me is is like my daily yoga almost um, so I, I, those are sort of three of the things I've done. I mean, there are others that we can talk about if, if you like, but those are kind of three things that I think are a good first step towards conquering that temptation to live in turbo. Well, you know, it's interesting that you brought up cooking because I think most of people that I know, when they hear the slow movement, they think of slow food. That's how they've heard about the slow movement. Why do you think cooking is such a leverage point for slowing down? Well, I think cooking is food is so central to our experience as as people as human beings. I mean, it's I mean, a it's basic fuel. You know, it keeps you going. It's it's connected to your health and so on, and to the way your mind works. Uh, but it also taps you into uh, social connection. You know, it's it's you know we the English word companion comes from the Latin words with and bread because it's when we sit down at a table together with a telephone, you know, TV and everything switched off, and we, we break bread together, that we are at our most close, at our most human. And, and of course, there's a, a big dimension to slowing down is relearning the, the lost art of, of living, you know, of, 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 of pleasure. And I think one of the things we lose when we get stuck in fast forward is pleasure, because we end up skimming the surface of things, rushing through, not being fully engaged, never being completely in the moment. And I think food, when you slow down with it, is one of the activities where you notice pretty much instantly the the sensual, the sensorial, the pleasure payoff. You know, simple, it can be simple food, but good food, well-made and eaten in a, you know, in a human, social, civilized fashion around the table. With, I mean, what, what could be better? And we all understand that intuitively. Even if we've been reared on on the worst diet of fast food and never really said people, that's something that's hardwired into us, that kind of, that need, that yearning to eat together and to and the ability to appreciate food and, and, and good food well well assembled. So I think that's one of the reasons that slow food has been one of the, uh, maybe sort of spearheading strands in the slow slow movement in general, and it's often 
the gateway movement for a lot of people to come into a broader understanding of slow. Because if you're sitting at home on the sofa thinking, oh man, my life is so fast, it's spinning out of control, where do I even start slowing down? I, you know, you think, well, do I start slowing down at work? Oh no, my boss will have my you know, head on a plate. You, you know, it's, you have often much more control over your food. And so that's often a good place to start, but it's also a place where you get the the instant payoff, which is what we all like as rushed, hurried people. You know, to, to be able to, to to be able to savor and taste right away the the benefits of slowness. And I think from there, often for a lot of people, slow, as I say, is the gateway, and that leads to them bringing this slow ethos to other corners of their lives. Now, for people who are unfamiliar with the slow food movement. Can you give me a sense of if I want to join the movement, what does this mean? How do I approach my breakfast, lunch, and dinner differently? Well, I think that it's about ultimately it's about uh, taking time over food. So that's at every uh, stage of the, the the chain, let's say. So you think about where your food has come from. You know, you, instead of buying a factory farmed chicken, you know, you think about buying a, a, a free range chicken, you know, a, 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 something that's, I guess it's about quality over quantity as well. So that's sort of the flip side of thinking about investing more time and then taking the time to, to prepare it, you know, the, the, the joy of, of, of cooking itself is, is, as I say, can be very therapeutic. It's my, my own, my personally, my, my form of uh, yoga almost. And then sitting down with the gadget switched off with people that matter to you and, and eating together and, and, and chatting and having conversation and talking about the food and enjoying it. So I guess the, 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 the simple thing is it's time, you know, devote more time. There are you know, every person has different tastes and everybody has a different budget. So this, some people think slow food is all about, you know, Italian loving bon vivant who, you know, drink fantastically expensive bottle of wine and quaff truffles. And I mean, you know, that's one end of slow food, but that doesn't have to be everything. I mean, you can do something as simple as just buying some tomatoes in the local co-op, um, bringing them home with, you know, some garlic and, um, a bit of basil or something, and, and just chopping it up, frying it, making a little pasta, and eating it outside in the garden, in the backyard with your family, and, and over some spaghetti, you know. And you could feed a family of four for not very much on that. And, you know, get the children involved. Um, get them chopping up the tomatoes or thinking about what goes into the food. And, and make it a convivial, um, pleasurable experience rather than a chore. And and I'm not a, I'm not a utopian. I, you know, I... You, we cannot turn every meal into a four-course banquet, and there are going to be times when you can't. You can't. You haven't got time to do all this stuff. But you know, where you do have time, use it and try and make more time. You know, maybe on the weekends you set aside a couple of hours to cook together as a family or with your partner or even on your own. Two or three dishes, you freeze them, and then you, you can heat them up and eat them around the table during the week. You know, it, it's not a kind of rigid idea of everybody living by some. You know, um, a nostalgic notion of you know every meal being put together with an hour's case. We're not all got an Italian mama in the kitchen, you know, to do that. Uh, but bringing some of that spirit, I suppose, to every meal, whether it's breakfast, lunch, or dinner. Mm-hmm. Now, it's interesting, Carl, that you mentioned pleasure and that the pleasure we can find in food when we slow down, and obviously the pleasure from slow sex. And one mm-hmm. of the things I've been reflecting on in thinking of why people don't slow down is some sense that they feel inside they don't deserve it. I mean, I have more to prove in the world. I have to earn more, get more, do more, because somehow inside I don't feel like I'm enough or I don't feel like I deserve pleasure. And I'm curious what you think about that. We could say the sort of psychological underpinnings 
the inner hunger that has us going, 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 going. Yeah. I'm not, that's an interesting way of coming at it. I'm not sure if I think that we don't feel we deserve pleasure, because in some ways it seems to me that as we've stumbled into the early 21st century, the whole consumer culture has reached its apotheosis, you know, the idea that we deserve everything now. I mean, that's kind of what led to that massive debt bubble that blew up in our faces in 2008. You know, people just felt like, you know, delayed gratification, forget it. You know, I'm just going to go out and buy whatever I want, whatever car, whatever house, whatever haul, you know, and spend, spend, spend. So I sort of think that we feel that we deserve pleasure, well, you know, goods, pleasure that, that, come, that we think comes with them. Um, but we feel that we've got to you know, at the same time, there's a lot of pressure on, on, on people to be busy and to be working and productive. So in some ways, I suppose I see we get locked into this cycle where we feel we've got to be working very hard, earning as much as possible. And at the same time, we feel we deserve the, to enjoy the fruits of that. But we tend to go a little bit too far with the fruits of that. So we end up spending a lot of money, which often puts more pressure on to work harder. So we end up in this cycle of working, spending, debt more work to pay off the debt, to spend more. So we end up in this kind of vicious circle where, you know, I, I, where there's no kind of race to nowhere, ultimately. And the, the, the horrible irony of that is that we start off thinking, well, we're, 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 we're driving in that direction in order to reward ourselves, in order to have pleasure, to enjoy things, and, and to earn the status and approval of our peers that comes from working hard and being busy and stuff. But Ultimately, by going too fast and getting stuck in that vicious circle, it all ends up going horribly wrong because we, we end up racing through our lives instead of actually living them. Maybe there's the kind of pleasure that you're talking about that comes from you know a bigger house or more consumer goods. And what I'm talking mm-hmm. about is the type of kind of deep relaxation, sort of in the moment type of sensual yeah. pleasures that... You know, but in any case, I think the real point I'm driving at is it seems that there's people have some sense of poverty inside that is part of what's creating this drive, 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 rushing. And I wonder how you feel that can be addressed. I think that's very true. I think that uh, speed becomes a way of running away from deeper problems that it, it almost ends up becoming a, a mechanism of denial that when something's not going right on on that deeper level that you're talking about, the kind of spiritual, metaphysical, you know, philosophical, whatever you, word you feel most comfortable using, you know, that, that kind of deeper reservoir, when things are not going right there, I think people often compensate by going faster on the surface. So you, you, you do more, you get busier, you consume more, but in a way, all of that is a way of just avoiding those deeper, big questions, you know. So we end up in this very superficial existence where everything is is about now. It's about our to-do list. It's about trivialities. You know, it's kind of, you know, where are my keys? I'm late for my 11 o'clock appointment rather than who am I? You know, what's my purpose here? <laughs> what 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 do I want to get out of life? What can I, How can I leave the world a better place? I mean, these the big questions, those things get pushed aside. And I, I think this, what happens ultimately, I mean, this is what therapists often talk about speed as you know, the final stage before burnout is one last burst of acceleration, as, you know, of busyness and running, as though the person is trying to escape all of those deeper issues and problems and dislocations. And then, of course, you hit the wall 
and crash and burn. And, and you know, people, by and large, do not have two burnouts. And I think that's quite quite revealing because once you've had that burnout, that usually forces slowness on you. It forces you to look deeper, to think harder, to see the bigger picture. And very few people, I think, come back into the game, into daily life with that same roadrunner craziness and frenetic busyness. They may go back to the same job, but I think they go back with a slower spirit and they go back making more time for that depth, that meaning, that understanding of enjoying the moment that you described a moment ago that that we do end up denying ourselves, but which ultimately is one of the main objectives of the slow movement is to recuperate that, to bring that back into not not just something we do on holiday or on the weekends, but something that is part of every day, that we arrive at every moment fully engaged, fully there, and living that moment completely rather than scatterbrained and trying to get through four moments at once. You're listening to Insights at the Edge, produced by Sounds True. If you're interested in listening to previous episodes of Insights at the Edge, they're all available for free in a searchable database as part of our new direct access membership program. For more information, please visit soundstrue.com forward slash direct access. And now back to Insights at the Edge. Now, Carl, this is a a kind of strange question, but it's something that actually I've really been reflecting on. I'm really curious what you have to say about it, which is often people say, well, you know, the culture is causing me to do X, Y, Z. It's the culture that has me, you know, needing to keep up on my email or needing to make more money or whatever. And the question that comes to me is, well, isn't culture a product of all of us, what is this thing called culture that people say is sort of outside yeah. of them working on them? What do you think about that? I think that the, I think I think it's true that people say that, and I think that's that, that's people's experience. I think that if they're they're not they're not just inventing that as an excuse. I think people do genuinely feel that there's a lot of pressure from outside because you know we are social animals. We're we're wired to worry about what other people are doing, to, to keep up with the Joneses, to worry about what the Joneses are doing, to try and fit in. That's that's what we are as human beings. And that, that in some ways, that's wonderful, and that can lead humanity, and it can lead us individually into, into some beautiful places. But of course, it has a dark side as well. And I think that when you get to a state when the, 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 the most people are painted into that sort of hysterical mode of going faster and faster and doing more and more in less and less time, you know, on the individual level, the micro, you end up with a macro culture that pushes people. So to some extent, I think that it's true that people do feel pressure from outside, but I think it doesn't give the whole picture because I think a lot of the drive to go faster comes from within, comes from each of us individually. And we do have the scope and the lever to stop that if we have the courage and the imagination um, to do so. So I, that that brings me back to the very first question you were asking about how I, where I felt this was going and how optimistic I was. And one of the reasons I am optimistic is that a lot of this comes down to the personal. You know, a lot of this starts with one person waking up one morning and just saying, you know what, I am not going to race through every moment of this day. I'm going to approach this day differently. And 
you know, that any social movement that has turned the world upside down is driven from the grassroots. It's driven by people waking up and having those aha moments, whether it's the feminist movement or the civil rights movement or the environmental movement. You know, those that pressure comes from below, comes from a grassroots groundswell. And every grassroots groundswell is built by a lot of, you know, millions of people changing their behavior and changing their attitudes. So I think, I think yes, there is pressure collectively and culturally, there's no question, but it's not irresistible. And, you know, who can change culture? We can. I like that. Wonderful. Now, I mentioned that I wanted to make sure that we talked about some of the different aspects of the slow movement, and we've briefly touched on slow food, and we've at least said the words slow sex. I'm curious what else, where you think the real examples of the slow movement in action are in the world today. Yeah. Well, it's, I mean, it really is right across the spectrum. There's uh, a big movement in the, uh, you know, there's a slow cities movement, slow uh, design, slow urban, you know, rethinking how we build cities to give people the space and the time and encourage them to, to put on the brakes and smell the proverbial roses. So whether it's closing streets to traffic uh, putting in more park benches or public in public spaces, putting in more green spaces, you know, trying to rethink the urban landscape in ways that encourage people to slow down. I live in London. In England, we big, you know, bustling metropolis. We now have thousands of public bikes everywhere parked all over the place that you just, you know, you go up, you put your, your, car, your membership card in, and you just ride them off and you leave them in another spot. And that's having all of those bikes in the street all of the time has changed the dynamic in the streets. You know, I drive as well as, a, as, as cycling, and you feel it differently. You know, there's a different feel in the road. There's a kind of slower idea of how to get around London. I think having so many bikes present there is one um, reason for that. Uh, you see a lot of this slow thinking pushing into the world of work. Uh, you know, when it comes to technology, for instance, the big high-tech companies telling us to to switch off our gadgets, to use them less. I mean, there's a slow email movement from IBM, which is all about you know ch- checking your inbox a bit less often, so that you are able to focus on your work and then come back and and not be tyrannized by your by your email. Uh, there are, I mean, one example of uh, Google with its 20% time, it gives uh, a lot of its engineers and creative people are given the, the right to devote a half, or, sorry, uh, a fifth, 20% of their working time to their personal projects. So no, to- no timetables, no targets, no, you know, just allowed to let their, do some slow thinking, essentially, you know, chase hunches, get things wrong, come back, rethink. And uh, some, you know, some of the Google people refer to that as their slow time. And, you know, that sounds like a, a charter for, you know, slackers and wasters and stuff. But but actually, it turns out that most of the, you know, or more than half of the game-changing products come out of Google, like AdSense or um, Google Maps and so on, come out of that 20% um, time. There's a big push within education now to get away from this uh, pressure to stuff children with academic learning earlier and earlier and earlier and test them over and over and over again so that marks and exam scores become more important than learning itself. A big push towards what's called slow education, uh, slow schooling, and you find that in um, North America and you find it across Europe. Uh, What else? Even in the fashion world, of course, fashion is famous for being incredibly fast and throwaway and disposable and here today and gone tomorrow, but a lot of fashion designers are trying to embrace some of these slow principles. So, you know, working with sustainable materials, um, you know, cotton that's fair traded and and environmentally friendly, or encouraging uh, people to buy 
and Vivian Westwood, a very famous designer from London, um, who's you know famous for launching the punk movement and so on, still a big mover in the fashion world. She talks a lot about uh, you know choose well and buy less. You know the idea again of quantity over quality. Instead of buying things that are just disposable, buy things that have that someone has built, has made slowly. Someone has made with a slow spirit some extraordinary piece and keep it for the rest of your life. You know, give it to your child, hand it on to your children, that sort of thing. Um, where else? I mean, it, it's really any uh, travel. Huge move in the travel movement to get away from the travel industry, to get away from this idea of you know flying to Barcelona for lunch and and, and all of that superficial experience of other countries that we have when when we travel in a hurry. So there's a big, big push within the travel industry to, to promote what's called slow travel. So taking, you know, spending more time in one place instead of staying in a in a chain hotel, you stay in, you know, you rent a, an apartment in a, in a, you know, from a family and live in a local neighborhood and sit in a cafe and watch the children playing in the playground and, you know, really plug into the culture so that you have a genuine, deep experience of the place rather than a kind of box ticking guidebook reading um, approach. So, I mean, it's it's a long list, and I could go on. But I, I, the, the bottom line here is that this slow creed, slow philosophy, really is very simple. The idea that you do things as well as possible, rather than as fast as possible, you seek to do them at the right speed. Once you change that chip in your head, you realize that it can revolutionize everything you do. And um, you know, from from food to design to cities to work to, to education to sex, um, you know, take your pick. Now, slow parenting seems like a pretty important area for exploration, especially when a child is in its earliest years. Is there attention being given to that? Oh, very much so. I mean, there's a lot of stuff going on in that world because, you know, we've handed on the virus of hurry to the next generation. And, and our kids, you know, nowadays they're born, they come out of the womb and they hit the ground running, don't they? It's, you know, baby Einstein DVDs, uh, baby Mozart, uh, baby uh, sign language classes, uh, Chinese lessons at the age of two. And, and and then they just carry on with schedules that would give a CEO heartburn. And I think more and more are realizing that that's not working, that that's backfiring on kids. They're having dreadful physical, emotional problems. They're not learning as well. You know, there are a lot of things going wrong in our approach to children. And because of that, the backlash is on, and people are bringing this slower idea, the idea that, you know, children have to, uh, you know, you want to stretch them, they have to struggle, they've got to strain, it's a bit of competition isn't a bad thing, sometimes they need to go fast, it's good for them to be busy some of the time, but not all the time, <laughs> not obsessively so, and really what children need ultimately is, is, is slowness, you know, they need the time and the space to explore the world at their own pace, to to daydream, to get bored even. We're all so terrified of boredom now. You know, a generation ago, a child came to a parent. I was that child. <laughs> you know, you said to your mom, I I'm bored. And she said, tough, you know, go outside and, and play, you know, make up again. Now you go to a, a child comes to a parent and says, I'm bored. And the parent panics and thinks, oh, you know, I'm failing. I'm failing as a parent when rushes in there to give more some kind of stimulation or create the fun for the child. And I think by backing off, you give children that, you know, boredom can be a a launch pad to inventing your own fun, to learning how to get along with your friends, to make sense of the world, to work out who you are rather than what your parents want you to be. And and so slow parenting is about giving children that freedom, you know, giving them a bit of a more of a free range childhood so that they, you know, they have their moments of being fast, but they also have some moments to slow down as well. And that's something that really resonates with people, I think, uh, 
especially the generation of parents who can look back on their own childhoods when they did have that time to explore, to mess around, to come up with stuff on their own. And then they compare it to what they and their neighbors have been doing to their own children, where they get up in the morning and there's every minute of the day is organized and, and starting to feel, is this really what we wanted for our children? Is this really what we wanted for ourselves? And increasingly the answer is no. And increasingly people are turning to this kind of slow idea to reinvent childhood for the 21st century. You know, as I'm listening to you, Carl, what's occurring to me is that you really seem to have a type of, I might call it a generous historical view of how we got into the situation we're in, in terms of being in such a rush. Meaning you see it as something that has happened over time as we've developed certain abilities to improve our life in certain ways and technology, et cetera, and yet now it's gone too far. And I wonder if you can just give us some insight into the historical perspective that's informed you. Well, I think the history is, 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 is fascinating, actually. In some ways, it's, it's reassuring because it shows that this is not new, you know, that, that people have always felt the itch to go too fast. And if you go right back to the, you know, ancient Rome, and you know, when people were using sundials, when the sundials began to appear in towns and people began using them, right away, people began to feel that their time was no longer their own, that other people were measuring their time, that they had to measure up to time somehow. They had to go faster to keep the schedule, keep up to speed, and so on. And and then you find, as you came into the, you know the medieval era, as people began inventing clocks and putting clocks up in town centers, that as soon as the clock went up, people began measuring themselves against the clock. You know, they began racing the clock. They began deciding how to live in relation to the clock. And I think that's one of the key strands here that goes all the way back, is that once you start measuring time, once you start dicing it up, time turns the tables on you, and you no longer control the time. The time, in a sense, controls you. And I think we've what happened was as we came into the modern era that we suddenly had we suddenly created all of these gadgets and machines that allowed us to to go faster to apparently to steal a march on time you know by doing more and more with less and less time and for for a while as i said earlier that that that, that worked out probably you know on the whole pretty well but it it, it, it we've entered the stage of diminishing returns now and i you know i i come back to the fact that i'm i am quite optimistic i think that we can learn to unlearn some of these habits, keep the good from the, the measuring of time and the machines and the gadgets and so on, allow them to uh, to help us live at the right speed rather than oblige us to live at the speed of software or follow the speed of the gadgets. So I, I think taking the bigger historical view makes me in some ways more optimistic. Yes, on one hand, it shows that we're always going to have that urge, the compulsion to go too fast is always going to be there. But at the same time, it, it makes you realize that, well, you know, there, this has happened over a long period of time. We've, it's, we've been on an upward curve, I, I, you know, for a, a very sharp curve for 100, 150 years, but the, the curve's been there since, you know, for hundreds of years. This is something that's always been there. People have been are becoming more and more aware of it. And, you know, man, mankind is very innovative and I think very ingenious. And I think that we can find a new way to relate to time. Uh, I mean, even now you see people, uh, younger people no longer wearing watches. Uh, you know, I know that they have their 
time on the phone, but that's already a sort of symbolic gesture. It's saying, you know, I'm not going to have the clock in my sight line because we know from experiments that when people look at the clock, just just seeing the image of a clock begins to make us feel a little bit rushed and start worrying about time. Uh, that's why casinos always never have clocks and why they block out the sunlight so we don't see the time passing, so that we stay there in the moment. And so there are ways, you know, there are levers that we can pull and different ways we can toy around with our psychology and so on to to start to get more out of this modern society than we're getting at the moment. Now, Carl, our program is called Insights at the Edge, and I'm always curious what someone's personal edge is. And it seems like you engaged in this whole inquiry into the power of slowness partially out of your own curiosity about your own life. And, you know, I can hear even when you speak, you're quite a quick speaker for someone who (laughs) lives and understands the power of slow. I'm curious, is this whole idea of slowness still a central question for you, or have you moved on? And if so, what is the central question at work in you now? No, I I, I definitely, this is the central question for me and remains it. I've you know, I've, after I wrote my first book, which is in praise of slowness, but I, my second book, which is called Under Pressure, which looked at childhood really through the prism of fast and slow. And I'm just finishing my next book, which is called The Slow Fix. And that's looking at how we solve problems without falling into the quick fix. So for me, the slow seems to me the perfect lens through which to see and think about who we are you know, where we're going, what we should do next. It, it's a, it, it just opens up so many different vistas intellectually. It, it's an engaging way, I think, to talk to people about their lives, about how they see the society advancing and culture changing and where the economy needs to go. It, I guess in some ways it breaks away from the old maybe left and right arguments or language that people use to um, that couched arguments in um it's for me. It's. It, I mean, in some ways, I guess that's really what it boils down. What you know, the human condition, in some ways, perhaps boils down to how you know how fast and how slowly we choose to do things. Because it's not only in choosing the tempo that we determine our pleasure from an experience or how well we do it, but it also says something about how much value we place on an act or a moment. You know. It's as simple as saying that, you know, if if I sit down with my child or I sit down with a friend and I switch off my phone and I'm completely listening to them for 20 minutes, you know, that, that says a lot about my relationship, but it says a lot about how I think society should operate. It says a lot about what I think the human condition should look like. And in the same way as slow food, you know, every time you put a morsel of food on your fork and put it in your mouth, you're making a statement about how you think agriculture should be constituted, how farm animals or f- farming should be done, you know, what the supply chain should be. So all of these things are connected. And I just think that for me, uh, slow is a, is, a, is, is, a, is a wonderful way in to these different conversations. And um, it remains a kind of guiding light for me, absolutely. And then just one final question, which is, I'm curious how you would help someone who's listening to this who says, you know, gosh, I really do need to slow down. And Carl's offered a lot of ideas in this conversation and different ways of looking at it. But where do I start? Where do I start? I know I'm a speed addict, so where do I begin? 
Okay, I, I'll say one thing before I give a suggestion on where to begin. Uh, I just want to underscore the fact that being slow it, it ultimately is a state of mind, that it's a bit like changing a chip in your head, because people often think or fear that slowing down means throwing in the towel. It means you know leaving the city, giving up your career, moving to the country, you know, moving to the Rockies, growing carrots, in, you know, in a shack somewhere. And that's one expression of slow, but it's not the only one. And it's one that many of us would probably run away from. I think slow really ultimately, and I've said it before, but I just want to say it once more, is, the, is getting to this notion that you arrive at every moment trying to do whatever it is as, as well as possible instead of as fast as possible, looking for the right speed. So I guess to that person sitting there thinking, how on earth do I slow down? I suppose I want to reassure them that, you know, you can do it. And you don't necessarily have to make huge changes in your life. You know, you probably can make a huge headway towards finding your inner tortoise and living better and so on, living more fully, more slowly, um, by making some smaller tweaks. So, But I'll come back to some of the things that I did. I think the first step for all of us when it comes to putting on the brakes is is just do less. You know, less is more. And and maybe sit down, look at the last week or the average week, write all of the things that you do on a piece of paper, order them in order of priority, what's most important and what's least important. And you'd be, you'd be surprised how easy it is to cut things at the bottom of that list. I mean, we just fill up our schedules with with fluff, with distraction, with things that are not important. And I think to see it in the cold light of day on a piece of paper, you think, goodness me, I devoted how many hours to watching TV or how many hours to you know, my email in the middle of the night, uh, how many hours to just wolfing around on the, on, on the Internet. I, I think when you see it written down, it's often a bit of a jolt and a wake-up call. So I think that's a good starting point. Um, another, again, in, my, in the same way as I slowed down, think about your get use of technology. You know, just ring fence time a time every day when you switch everything off you're just not reachable uh, maybe it's an hour starts as an hour on saturday morning and it grows to be most of sunday afternoon you know whatever depending on your circumstances but find moments when you can get off the grid and then a third suggestion is to identify some activity some as i said earlier for me it's you know yoga and especially cooking something that puts a break on you that helps you find that lower speed, that, that lower gear, and it helps you, so sort of re-educates you into the the joys of, of, of slowness. And I think with those three points, I mean, even just pick one of them to start and and, 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 and go with it. And, and don't be impatient because slowing down takes time. I mean, the slow revolution will be slow uh, for all of us and for uh, at the collective level as a society, but we'll, you know, it's it's also slow. It's a process. It's a transition individually. So don't get disheartened if you feel a bit fidgety, if you feel panicky, and you think, I can't do this, I need to speed up again. Um, you know, st- stick with it. It, it. It's worth it. Wonderful. Thank you. I've been speaking with Carl Honoré. He has created with Sounds True a three-session audio teaching program on the power of slow, finding balance and fulfillment beyond the cult of speed. Thank you, Carl, for being with us on Insights at the Edge. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Soundstreet.com. Many voices, one journey. Slowly we go.